going to begin our time together this evening by noticing a passage in Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16 and starting in verse 13 there. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now this passage is one that we refer to rather frequently. But this evening we want to think about this passage, or the reason that we started with this passage, is because we're going to be talking about the Pope. And when you do some research into Catholicism and try and understand what Catholics believe about the Pope, you'll find that it all kind of filters back to what we just read there in Matthew 16, in this confession that Peter made concerning who Christ is and Christ's words subsequently. They will claim that Peter was the first pope and that from Peter then there was a succession of popes down through time even up until today. So what about the Pope is the title of our lesson. We're going to think about what do the scriptures say in light of what Catholicism would teach pertaining to this particular office or this particular person. Who is the Pope? I think that's a good place to start. Most of us are familiar with who the Pope is, but if you go and look into the Catholic teaching regarding this particular role or office, they will claim that the Pope is the visible head of the church. They say that, pardon my my mistype there on the the outline, should be known, not know, uh, but some other terms that are used to refer to the same person are the Bishop of Rome and the Vicar of Jesus Christ. They claim that he is the successor of St. Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, the Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church. So these are some pretty fancy, fluffy titles 
that are given to this particular person. Uh, the first official pope was Boniface III in 607 AD. Uh, even though Catholics ultimately view Peter as the first pope, the office itself was not really established as it is known today uh, until that time. Now, the Catholic Church bases its papacy on a certain set of beliefs, as we said, and we're going to analyze each of these things in light of the scriptures throughout the lesson tonight. But the first of these is that they will claim Peter was the rock on which the church was founded. So again, you think back to what we had read there a moment ago, and Christ says, on this rock I will build my church. Well, they will claim that the rock being referenced was Peter himself. They claim that Peter was the chief of the apostles. And lastly, that there was to be a succession of power and authority from the apostles all the way up until today. So we're going to look at each of these claims, these foundational beliefs that are used to support this office. And, of course, there's so many other things that go along with the Catholic Church and the order of things that they have come up with. But this is obviously a very central part of their doctrine and their beliefs. And so if we can show that the Pope and that office and that teaching is not in line with the Word of God, well, then it kind of tumbles the whole house of cards, if you will. And this, of course, is not to just poke at Catholics, but we do need to be mindful of other doctrines and other beliefs that are around about us in our society so that when we talk with people who hold these beliefs, we can share with them the truth and be able to do that in a way that is logical and effective. And so we could pick any number of things to talk about in regards to beliefs of other religious groups. But we always want to analyze everything in light of the Word of God, and that's what we seek to do tonight. And so, first of those claims, was Peter the rock that's being referred to there in Matthew 16? I put verse 18 up here on the screen for us. And I have it written out there in the original Greek. And we know, of course, that the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language and then later translated into English and uh, virtually every other language that man has invented as of today. But I did that so that we could line up the original text with the English translation and we can match up by color there, each of those words and how it was rendered into the English. And you'll find something quite striking there when you look at it in that original Greek language. you find that uh, the words used for Peter and rock, they're actually two different words, uh, not the same word at all. And so Petros is the official name of Peter, that is translated Peter, and Petra is the word that is translated rock. And so, literally, 
looking at the Greek to English, it would read, you are Peter and on this, the rock. Now, when we study several other passages of scripture, I think it becomes quickly apparent that what Jesus was referencing here was not Peter himself, but rather what Peter had said, the truth that Peter had rightly identified about who do men say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Back here in Isaiah, turn back with me there to chapter 28. We're going to look here at verse 16. And this, of course, is a prophecy of Jesus. It says there, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. So we have this prophecy and then you just kind of isolate that verse in and of itself. It might be kind of obscure as to, well, what's What's this stone, this cornerstone that's being talked about here? Well, if we come over to the New Testament in the book of 1 Peter, we'll find that Peter refers to this very prophecy, and he makes application to Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 there, and starting in verse 4. Now, he's speaking of Jesus here. He says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. And notice now he quotes from where we'd read a moment ago. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. He being Christ, of course. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which also they were appointed. So here we see that this stone, this foundation, this cornerstone from which all the rest of the kingdom would be constructed was indeed and is indeed Jesus the Christ. Now we turn back here also to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And you look there with me at verse 11. And it says, No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Peter the Apostle. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says the foundation is Jesus Christ. And you turn a few pages over there to chapter 10 and look at verse 4. And notice here again we find kind of a different context, but yet 
Jesus is being referred to, and again, notice the way in which he is described. As it talks about the Israelites, as they were there in the wilderness, it says they all ate the same spiritual food, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. So throughout the, uh, the, the scriptures, we see consistently that Jesus is referred to as this rock, this cornerstone. And so when we bring that knowledge back to the passage that we have been considering here in Matthew chapter 16, it becomes very apparent and everything matches up. We understand that what Jesus was meaning when he said he would build his church, the foundation was that he is the one that the prophet had written of. He is this stone, this solid foundation, as Peter had correctly identified. Was Peter the chief apostle? That, again, is the second claim that the Catholic Church makes in support of the office of the Pope. Was Peter the chief apostle? Well, we know from the passage there again in Matthew 16 that Jesus makes this statement about, I'm going to give you, Peter, as he's talking to Peter specifically, he talks about, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom, right? Now, we know, of course, on the day of Pentecost that Peter indeed did preach that first gospel sermon. He unlocked the door, if you will, for people to have salvation through Christ. But I want us to notice something interesting. Just a few pages over from Matthew 16, a few chapters over. Notice in chapter 18 with me, starting in verse 1, or actually we're just going to notice verse 1 and then we're going to jump down to verse 18 here. But we're reading verse 1 to get the context and understand who Jesus is speaking to here at this time. It says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus. Notice all the disciples, not just Peter here. And they said, well, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, we could read that, and that does actually somewhat apply to the lesson here, but we're going to jump down, and I want to notice something that he says as he's still speaking to all of his disciples in verse 18. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed. In heaven. That sounded interesting. That sounds familiar. Where did we see that before? <laughs> Just a few chapters back there in Matthew 16. So we see that this same uh, phraseology, this same uh, truth that Jesus is explaining about what not just Peter, but all the apostles would ultimately do in regards to the kingdom, uh, it was something that they all would have part of in laying down the authority of heaven here on the earth, and explaining to men how they can be saved through the blood of Christ. Now also, we notice over here in Acts chapter 2, where Peter does preach that first sermon, something that's interesting in verse 14 there. It says, Peter, standing up, notice, with the eleven, raised his voice, and said to them, and of course he begins his speech there, but you notice that Peter stood up with the other apostles. It wasn't just him all by himself as though they had 
conceded that, well, Peter is the chief apostle, and so uh, we'll just sit down and let him do his thing. Uh, They all stood together. Now, Peter, of course, was the one speaking, but I think that's an important detail that, again, leads us to the correct answer to the question that we are asking here. Was Peter indeed the chief apostle? Over here in Ephesians, the second chapter, you look there at the end of the chapter, starting about verse 19. Now he's writing here to the church and he's describing the church. He says, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but your fellow citizens with the saints, your members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of, notice, the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being that chief cornerstone, we talked about that earlier, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So here again we see that There's no special designation given to Peter, uh, but rather it acknowledges that the foundation of the kingdom, Christ was the cornerstone, but those other foundational stones included all the apostles and the prophets even before who had spoken concerning how all these things would ultimately come together. And so we are built upon that foundation as the household of God. Now another place we might look to give us some insight, is in Acts chapter 15. At this time, in the context, you remember how Paul, in his travels, he'd encountered several who were being taught by brethren that had come up from Jerusalem that, well, they needed to keep certain things in regards to the old law of Moses, even though they were putting on Christ and following Christ. So they determine they're going to go down to Jerusalem and figure out, you know, is this really what the church here is teaching? Or is uh, are these people acting on their own authority? We need to make sure that we're all teaching the same thing and being of the same mind, in other words. And so they they all come together to have this, this council and to discuss these matters. So in Acts 15, we're going to notice just a a sampling of verses throughout the chapter here. First of all, in verse 7, it says, When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up, and he said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so he begins to speak and to share some things of his own experience to help them come to the proper understanding of the truth. But then you'll notice as you go down through the the happenings here, you jump to verse 12. It says, All the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered and said, Men and brethren, listen to me. And so now James has something to share. In verses 19 and 20, James is still speaking here, and he gives his opinion. He says, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. And in verse 23, as they 
finally determined that the best course of action is to write this letter and make sure that all the congregations uh, that had been established at that point are on the same page as to what the truth of the matter is. It says there that they wrote this letter by them, the apostles and elders and the brethren, to all the various other locations. But you notice there it doesn't say from Peter, the head of the church, or anything of that nature, any of those fancy titles that we had noticed there at the beginning, but they all collectively were writing in agreement with the Spirit of God. What was Peter's attitude? That might be another good place to look, right? Well, what did Peter think of himself? And did he esteem himself as the chief amongst those who were followers of Christ, who had been chosen as apostles of Christ? You jump back a few pages to chapter 10. Remember here where Peter comes to the household of Cornelius and the first Gentiles are converted to Christ. In verses 25 and 26 is what we want to notice. There it says, as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Now you'll see people do that today with the Pope. They'll fall down and they'll kiss his ring and do things of this nature to really offer him worship as though he is a an object of worship. Now notice what Peter does. In the next verse, Peter lifted him up. He said, stand up, I myself am also a man. And Peter wouldn't accept any kind of worship. He said, look, I'm just like you. Now yeah, he was an apostle. Yeah, he had a special mission that he'd been chosen for, but he did not accept worship or esteem himself as any better than this person who he'd come to teach. And you might notice also in 1 Peter, obviously written by Peter, chapter 5 there in verse 1, he begins to address the elders amongst the congregation whom he'd written the letter. He says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am your chief elder. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Again, you notice the humility about himself. Uh, he puts himself on the same level as, as all the others rather than esteeming himself. We might think about Paul's attitude towards Peter. Come with me to uh, 2 Corinthians 11. We'll look there at verse 5. This isn't necessarily specifically about Peter, what we read here, but we see Paul and talking about him in comparison with the other apostles. He says, I consider that I am not at all inferior to even the most eminent apostles. So that's that's a clue, isn't it? Because if Peter was indeed the chief apostle, you'd think Paul would be acknowledging that here and say, well, you know, I, I may not be a Peter, but I, I'm still pretty good, you know, something to that effect. But no, he says, I'm just like all the other apostles. And then we have an interesting happening that takes place in the book of Galatians that Paul records for us. Here in Galatians, the second chapter, we're going to start there in verse 6. And we'll read down through about verse 14. Paul says, From those who seemed to be something, 
Whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles, he says, when James and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. And then he says in verse 11 that when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face. Now, do you hear about people withstanding the Pope to his face these days? He wouldn't dare do that, right? Because he makes the rules. He's the spokesperson of Christ here on the earth. We don't question the Pope. But here we find Paul confronting Peter to his face. And why did he do that? He says he was to be blamed for certain men came from James who would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews also, they followed his lead. They played the hypocrite with him, he says, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So it's becoming quite apparent, I think, at this point, that the Bible does not support in any way the idea that Peter was somehow superior to any of the other apostles or any of the other Christians, even. But finally, on this point, what did Christ say about the matter? That seems like the deciding factor in any dispute, right? What did Jesus say? Well, let's come back here to Luke chapter 22. First of all, Luke chapter 22, we'll look at verses 24 through 27. It says, there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. This is the disciples now. So Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus, of course, acknowledging his own example, but he's basically saying, look, this is not what it's all about. We're not setting up some kind of hierarchy of who's most popular or who's most important. You're all servants. That's what you're called to be, just as I've given you that example. And we can think about his rebuke of the Pharisees in Mark, uh, not Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 23. Read just a portion of that here quickly. Starting in verse 6 there, he says, They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces. They love to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, but you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you're all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you, again we see, shall be 
your servant. So we don't read about any particular saint being granted the the Pope mobile, right? I always laugh when I see that. I think na 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 Catholics. Well, what about the final item there? Did the apostles, namely Peter, have successors? Oh my, look at all those scriptures. We gotta look at all those. Well, let's let's think about the requirements for apostleship that were given in the pages of the New Testament. Let's first come to Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, we'll read uh, starting there in verse fifteen. And we're actually going to read down through the end of that chapter there. So it says, in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. And he said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. This man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akel Damah, which is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from us, you read about that earlier in the the chapter there, he says one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So there's your qualifications, you see. Uh, Somebody who had to have been with them throughout the ministry of Christ who'd been witness to all these things that had happened. So they proposed two different individuals, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and the other was Matthias. So they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you've chosen uh, to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell. So they cast the lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven. Now, of course, we know that the only exception to that was with regards to Paul. He was later chosen as an apostle. But there's some details that we need to note in regards to to Paul. Uh, First, we go to 1 Corinthians 15 here in verse 8. Now, In the verses leading up to this, Paul is giving different examples of Christ's appearances after he had been resurrected. And so he appeared here and there and to different people. But then he says, last of all, verse 8, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So even though Paul had not been with Christ throughout his ministry, he did still witness the resurrection or the resurrected Christ firsthand. That's an important detail that 
we need to note there. Now, notice with me over here, Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1, as Paul is uh, introducing this letter, and you want to note the way that he describes himself here. He says, Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, uh, he goes on and says to the churches there in Galatia. So it's important to note that we don't see anywhere where apostles were made just because men decided they should be apostles. Even Paul here, as he thinks about his own apostleship, he says this is not something that has come through men, but God has chosen this and approved this. Now, come back again with me to Acts 1. We're going to read a little bit earlier on there in the chapter. Acts 1, starting in verse 4 now. It says, Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. Christ is still with them at this point. So his instruction is not to depart Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they'd come together, they asked, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the fathers put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and to all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. So now we're learning another piece of the puzzle as to why the apostles were unique and, and separate from, from the rest. They were going to have something special happen to them, in other words. They were going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, as Christ describes here. Now, of course, we see the fulfillment of that in chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. One sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And as evidence of this, it says they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And that, of course, was all to serve as a means through which people would take note and give attention and come to hear the gospel message as you See there as you continue reading. Now, again, coming back to Paul, over here in chapter 9 of Acts, look at verse 17. Here we see that Ananias went his way and entered the house. This is where Saul was after seeing Christ there on the road to Damascus. So he enters the house and he lays his hands uh, on Saul, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and then notice also be filled with the Holy Spirit. So the same unique thing was going to take place for Paul as well. And you'll note that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 13 there, the writings of the Apostle Paul. In describing the things that he is teaching, he says, These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 
So, very unique set of circumstances for those who were chosen as apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about what did the apostles do as they began to establish the church throughout the known world? Was there some kind of succession of the apostles? Well, no, we don't see that. Actually, what we see is that in each church, there were elders that were established to give oversight to the Christians there in each location. Let's come over here to Acts chapter 20. We'll look at a couple verses here specifically. Acts chapter 20, and we're going to look at verse 17 and also verse 28. Here it says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And so they come and he begins to say a number of things to them. In verse 28 specifically, notice he tells them to take heed to themselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Peter also himself gives insight as to what these elders were to be doing, what the purpose of that particular appointment was. Again, coming back to 1 Peter 5, we'd read verse 1 earlier, where Peter identifies himself as a fellow elder to those that he was writing to. Verse 2, he says, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples, he says to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he's not talking about himself, he's talking about Jesus. When Jesus appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And again, just to come back and notice one other bit of information on this point in Acts 14. You'll notice in verse 23 uh, that as Paul and his companions are making their way back through where they had previously been, preaching the gospel and establishing different congregations. It says they appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting and commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we don't see that it was like two or three men were set up to be over all the churches everywhere. It was something that was unique to each and every local church that had been planted as the apostles went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so these men were given as shepherds over each local flock. A sharp contrast again to the hierarchy that we see even today with Catholicism. And so the Bible makes plain that Christ is the only head of the church. He is the only one that has any authority to make any kind of law, to make any kind of decision regarding his kingdom. He is the king. And several passages that we'll note here just to establish that fact. We come over to Colossians. And chapter 1 there, verse 18 It says that he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. 
The preeminence belongs to Christ and Christ alone. No man is to be elevated to the place of God or to be respected as God is respected or let alone be worshipped as God is worshipped. We come back a few pages there to Ephesians chapter 1. The last two verses there, verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And lastly, you'll notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 there, that Paul, as he is teaching a number of things to those in Corinth, he so he tells them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we don't ever see any of the apostles trying to put themselves in the place of God or on the same level as Christ, but rather all authority is always given back to the king. And so it is even today. So when we analyze all these things and put it all together, we see that the very foundational so-called truths upon which the Catholic Church has built the Pope and bishops and all the other hierarchy of its church, it crumbles in comparison with what God's Word actually teaches. So it's important that we understand these things. It's important that we can, again, like we said, be able to intelligently explain these things to those that we deal with and interact with from day to day so that we can hopefully help someone who is lost to come to a knowledge of the truth, an understanding of the truth. We'll close with 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 there beginning. It says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Jesus didn't establish his kingdom so that we would go out and by force uh, make people bend to our will and believe the way we believe. He says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or earthly, but they are mighty, he says, in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And as I think about that phrase, I think the Pope fits very nicely into that description, unfortunately, because the Pope has exalted himself as really, in a lot of senses, Jesus incarnate. And that is just completely incorrect in regards to the truth. And so, as again, we're, we're reading here, God has given us the sword of the Spirit to fight against these false arguments and these things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. He says, we must bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so that's why we study these things. Again, it's not to try and poke at. So I apologize for my little song there about the Pope Mobile. That was maybe over the line a little bit. But we, we study these things so that we can indeed bring everything into the captivity of the obedience of Christ. We want to follow him and him alone in everything that we say and do. So I hope that the lesson has been received in that spirit. Tonight, if there's anybody here who has a need, whether to be baptized or to repent or to ask for prayers, whatever it might be, we would stand ready to assist you in those things. And so, as our brother has chosen this invitation song, as we sing it together now, if there's anyone that has that need, please make it known by coming up to the front.